I don't do this lecture enough in the sense that um, I enjoy doing it. I, 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 sometimes we need to be reminded of things that we know, you know, and I need to remind myself. If you weren't here, well, you couldn't, not all of you could have been here. It was nowhere near this many folks uh, earlier. So I'll back up just a little bit. To me, the most exciting single theological slash interface between theology and apologetics is the question of what did earliest preaching consist and between the death of Jesus and the writing of the first New Testament book. Let me ask that from a different angle. Where do we get our information of what the very earliest apostolic church preached? Now, think about the normal kinds of answers. Well, Mark's pretty early at plus 40. Now, when I say plus 40, you know I'm going from 30 AD, the second most popular year for the death of Jesus is 33. If it's 33, all you're going to do is move things down three years, so it's kind of irrelevant. But 30 is a nice round number. Mark's about 40 years later. So the typical answer is, 40 years, they got it all on paper, well, papyri, and uh, worked it all out. And then Paul's 20 years, uh, up to 20 years before that. And they stopped there. And that's good. 20 in the ancient world is great. We gave the example of Alexander, where the earliest detailed source is plus 280. The best detailed sources in Alexander are plus four and a quarter to 450. That's ridiculous as far as historical sources are concerned. That's not good. But people don't go around saying, we don't know anything about Alexander. But can we get back? Oh, so in other words, 20 years is great, but can we get behind 20? Can we get anything from 30 to 50 AD? Okay, now that's a theological question. Can we get anything from 30 to 50? The apologetic question is, can we make it stick? Can we do the argument in such a way that it can't be denied? Now, if you have a combination of early, 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 plus strong argument, what you got is the truth of Christianity. And I'm going to say something up front. I usually save it for the second lecture, but the second one will build on this one. I don't usually get to do this one before that one. Everybody wants that one. I keep pointing down because I'll be down to the floor walking off a timeline for the whole lecture. Um, so I, don't get, I usually don't get to build into it. But if you ever thought about this, if the gospel that we defined in the earlier lecture, the gospel, which whenever the New Testament answers the question, factual content only, of what did the earliest gospel consist? What was the gospel, the factual gospel message? Answer, minimum. Because a couple other things are added here and there, but the ones that are always there, deity of Jesus, death, resurrection. Deity, death, resurrection. You want the whole answer. It's deity, atoning death, bodily resurrection with appearances because the New Testament separates. This may be strange to you to hear, but the New Testament separates resurrection from appearances. 
Think of it this way. Resurrection is what happened inside the tomb. Appearances are what happened outside the tomb. So two different things. But if you get this down, the more we're sure of deity, death, resurrection, then with it you've got the I do. You make Jesus your own. You invest your life. You've got Christianity. Let me say that again. If all we know is that Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross for our sins, was raised from the dead, and if we say I do to him, we're on the yellow brick road, to use our earlier illustration. We've got Christianity. That's the center. Now, here's how strong this, this comet is. I talk to doubters all the time, more than I would like to, to be frank. It's very, very time-consuming. I don't know, I've had 650-ish discussions with doubters. By the way, latest thing, unbelieving doubters. They write and they say, help, help. I don't want to go to hell. What can you tell me? Well, I guess we'll have to talk. <laughs> you know, have you ever been asked to be witness to? Please, please, witness to me. Okay, I might find a little bit of time. It's a nice situation. So believers and unbelieving doubters. And the thing today is we're not good, we're not good thinkers. There are a lot of other issues, but we're not good thinkers. And when people come to the Lord or are about ready to come to the Lord, but they can't answer every last question, they start getting worried. I'll give you an example. An international Christian from the Far East wrote to me recently. And uh, he's Chinese. And he said, I've been hammering resurrection. I've been learning it. I've been getting it down. I'm so excited. I want to know as much about resurrection as you guys who deal with it full time. And I said, I wrote back and I said, that's wonderful. Keep studying. It was obvious he'd already studied a lot. Two weeks later, I got a letter. Help, help me. I'm losing my faith. I'm this close to walking away. How do, how do you put those two together? I want to be the world's best apologist on the resurrection. Whoops, I'm really close to walking away. What was it? He heard a couple periphery questions out on the edge. I could tell you what, what I, I mean, you know, like, I'll offend you because everybody will think whatever I think is periphery, you'll think it's central. But they might say, I got to solve sovereignty, free will. I got to know if eternal security is true. I have to know the age of the earth. I have to know, I have to know, I have to know. And they think that if they get stumped on one of those periphery questions, they're back in the doubt house. And I tell them, why do Christian publishers have at least 50 different three, four, and five views books? How many of you know what, what I mean by three, four, and five used books? Where they'll take a book and they'll say, are the sign gifts here today? How old's the earth? It's sovereignty, free will. And they have somebody representing all three views and it's an evangelical press. You, you folks familiar with those? Why do we have 50 of those in evangelicalism? Because we know the periphery issues. It doesn't bother us. But when we hear a critic ask those questions, we fall apart. Here's my suggestion. Maybe we don't have to answer those questions. I mean, 
You can have a, please have a view. We need to have a view. Have a view. Just don't be so super dogmatic that we think our view is the only way to go. But have a view. But the only ones that really count are the ones toward the middle. We, count them, we call them the fundamentals. And the, and the closest in the middle are what we call the gospel fundamentals. And the very center, it's the deity, death, resurrection. And are you saying I do to Jesus? And I tell my grad students, I'm going to ask Moses how the earth was. I'm going to ask Paul if he was really a Calvinist or not. I'm going to ask Paul if he really believed in eternal security. I kind of want to know that when Jesus thought the time of his coming was. He said he didn't know, but he made some difficult comments. What do we do with those? That'd be cool. But that doesn't affect my Christianity. If Jesus is Son of God who died on the cross for our sins, was raised from the dead, and we are walking in his steps, we've said I do to him, we're saved. We can take a post-grad theology course and work these other things out. You don't have to be in a turmoil every time somebody asks a question you don't know. So there's an incredible amount of importance on getting the center down. Now, back to the question. How do we know what that center was for the first 20 years? 30 to 50. What is it? I'm going to introduce a topic tonight that may be surprising to some of you. It's the best kept secret, I think, the best kept secret in New Testament scholarship. Because first of all, almost nobody talks about it. You can find good books on it. But given all the books we have, there aren't that many books. And it's a question of, these are roughly synonyms. And I'll break down some of the where they're not synonyms. But Creeds or confessions or formulas. There's another word or two. But here's the thinking. Here's the thinking. New Testament scholars who study sociology today say that to 70, 80, 90% of Jesus' hearers were probably illiterate. How do you teach somebody the keys to the kingdom when they can't read or write? Well, probably by far the best answer is memorize. Let me ask you a question. Could somebody theoretically know the words to, um, let's say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Could somebody sing along and not be able to write their name? Could they sing the whole song and not miss a word? Yeah, you don't have to be illiterate. I mean, you don't have to be literate to sing that song because you put the words, and especially if you know the music, right? It kind of falls right in. So what do we do? What did you just do? You've got beautiful words plus a catchy tune, and that that sort of plays the role of reading and writing if you don't read and write. In an early church, the version of it was to do it with creeds. Sometimes it was a song. A lot of theologians think Colossians 1 and Philippians 2 are hymns. And others. 
But it doesn't make a difference if it's a... I mean, there's really no difference between a song, you know, keep it secular, just to make a, a point here, some secular song where you know the words. And the creedal version would be, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down, right? And you can know both the secular song, I want to teach the world to sing, or Jack and Jill went up the hill. Because there's words, there's cadence, you can remember them. There might be music or there might be cadence, and you'll get it down and not be able to write or read. But you can pass it on, right? You can give it to somebody else. It can be contagious. That's what happened in the early church. And these creeds, traditions, confessions, formula, are, formulae are the answer to the question, what was the earliest message? Now, these oral, these teachings were originally oral. Jack and Jill went up a hill. Now, somebody someday wrote Jack and Jill went up a hill. They wrote it down. But it could be, it could get around just as well orally. So, somebody wrote a lot of these down in the New Testament. I dealt with these in a 1996 book, uh, The Historical Jesus, and someone just wrote to me. It was Lee Strobel, actually, just wrote to me recently, and he said, hey, somebody asked me for permission to publish a list of 40 creeds in the New Testament, and I realized they weren't mine. They were in your book. I said, take them, Lee. Use them. Pass them around. But I've been doing some more work on it now, and I'm up to about 60 I'm not saying me like I'm the only one doing it. I'm just saying that's my list. About 60 of them now. You go, well, this sounds kind of subjective. How do you know a creed if it hits you between the eyes, especially if you can't read? How do you know what a creed is? All right, so let's go to that. One note here. Oftentimes, these are called pre-Pauline. More about this in the second lecture tonight, but here's what pre-Pauline means. If this is the cross down here, and this is when Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15 about 25 years later. And if Paul's conversion, here's the cross again, Paul's conversion is about plus two or three. Pre-Pauline means this material comes from here. Did y'all get that? Here's the, here's, the, here's the parameters. Here's the cross. Here's Paul's conversion. Pre-Pauline means it has to come in this slot right here to be pre-Pauline. That definition, by the way, is Bart Ehrman's, the skeptic. So they're often called pre-Pauline. That's a little intro to how early these are. All right, let's ask some questions. These creeds are brief statements of early Christian belief. Sometimes they're hymns. In the book of Acts in particular, they're sermon summaries. It's pretty exciting in itself. We get an insight. Oscar Coleman's little book. Now, the edition I have, I think, is 1949. It was written before that. To this day, scholars will tell you this is probably the best book ever written on this subject. 
How many times are you told the 1949 book is the most scholarly and the best one, and it's only just a little over 100 pages? And if you try to get it online, every time I check, it's like $150. So if you can find it, last time I checked, it was in public domain. I guess it would still be. I don't know. Copy it. Put it on your shelf because it's legal. If it's public domain. All right. Here's Coleman's five occasions when creeds were given. Number one, baptisms. Most scholars think Romans 10.9 is a baptismal creed. If, we, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'll just add three verses later, Lord is a pretty flexible term. Lord can be translated sir, curios, can be translated sir. And that's Paul on the way to Damascus. Sir, who are you? At least that's where some translations go. But Paul says three verses later, first, I mean, Romans 10, 13, he quotes Joel, we, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the name Lord there from Joel, you can look it up in Hebrew, Jehovah. Whoa. Do you realize what this creed just said? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Jehovah, I did say that literally, but it seems like that's what Paul means very clearly. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Jehovah, believe in your heart that God's raised the dead, you'll be saved. That's heavy. And what is it? Pre-Pauline. They were saying that about Jesus back here? Yes. It's like, whoa. Because even evangelical churches, we've said for years that it might have taken the early church, I mean, it was always true all along, but it might have taken the church until Mark's gospel came out 40 years later to unpack some of this, or Paul's epistles. But how about, how about two to three years? Is that good for you? Two to three years? Early and heavy. Oh, by the way, as far as being a baptismal creed, Today, I don't know how you do it here, but we do a lot. We used to do a lot of um, Bob, uh, Betty. Have you trusted Christ your personal Savior? And all the candidate says is, I have. And the pastor says, upon the confess of your faith, I baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with him in his death, raised with him in his resurrection. But all the candidate says is, yes, I have. In the early church, this is another story, but it seems like they went down into the water giving a testimony. The candidate played more of a part. And that's the confessing Christ part of Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth. Just a little side. Two, worship, liturgy, or preaching. Great example, Philippians 2. Another one would be Colossians 1, but Philippians 2 is a better example. He was in the morphe of God. He's in the morphe of God. Folks, we got some folks here who are looking for chairs. There's some over here in the back. There's a few right in the middle. I don't know if people have them or not, but we've got a few left, especially over here. Um, Philippians 2, Jesus was in the morphe of God. Morphe is a pretty easy word in, in uh, English. 
But in Greek, it mean, the primary meaning is the nature of. Sounds like they're saying the son was in the nature of the father. Pretty heavy. Exorcisms. Creeds were used in exorcisms. Again, these are Oscar Coleman's. He's a Swiss-German scholar. Persecution. The one of 1 Timothy 6 said, Jesus kept his testimony in the face of death when he witnessed before Pilate. And then we're told to go out and keep our testimony similarly. Anti-heresy. In other words, putting together apologetics. And guess what the text is? The key resurrection text of the New Testament. As I just, the note here just says, these can overlap. You can use these in more than one category. You go, well, okay, okay. I, I, I think I'm following you, but there seems to be a, a little scholarly issue here. How do you know these are creeds? How do you know where the creeds are? You just going eeny, meeny, miny, mo? Where are they? All right. First of all, you got to be really good in Greek. I'm not. I'm not the guy that finds these. All right. Here's some common criteria. Ignore the scholars unless you're interested in names. Texts often introduce themselves with the words deliver, confess, or believe. We confess these things. We believe these things. Take 1 Corinthians 15. I gave you that which I also received. More about that in the next lecture. I gave you that which I also received. Same words Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. I gave you that which I also received from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for sins, according to the scriptures, buried, rose again, the third day, according to the scriptures, and appeared. 1 Corinthians 11, it's Christ... Uh, uh, I received from the Lord that which I also received. How Christ, the same night in which Christ was betrayed, took bread. He broke it, gave thanks, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. And the cup after, also after supper passed the saying, this is um, my blood, which is a ransom for many. But both, both of them start out, I gave you what I was given. How do you know this is a creed? Paul told you he got this from somebody else. Well, how do I know it's a creed? Well, you're putting too much emphasis on the word creed. Paul received a tradition. He received some teaching from somebody and passed it on. So that's the most obvious one. Many times, the New Testament books say, observe the traditions of the elders, or here's a trustworthy saying, or... Um, you know, like holy are these words. And many times they're, they're like Jack and Jill went up the hill. Only the Christian version would be 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following comes in two creeds, they believe. Two stanzas. All right, so introduced by the words, you're told it is. Contextual dislocations, takes the New Testament scholar to say that. Contextual dislocations. That means there are textual interruptions. Have you ever um, tried to write something, maybe for a paper, and you can't get the tense right? 
the quote you're giving doesn't agree with where you were in your text. You don't know if you should think it's past tense or present tense. Or, and if you get really, really tired, you just say, forget it. And you copy it, and the professor writes in the margin, awkward. Have you seen that happen? Well, there are places like that where the creeds in the New Testament are written down awkwardly. The creed is disjointed from, let's say, Paul. But if Paul wrote it, why would it be disjointed if it was him? So the disjointedness is an example of him using other material, just like it is when we write a paper. Repetition or regular language patterns that are repeated. That's a good example of, uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 15. In Greek, it's kai ha ti, and that, and that, and that. And that is a Hebrew means of passing on tradition. Here's how it fits in. I gave you that which I also received, how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he died for our sins, and that he was buried, and that he rose, and that he appeared. That, and that, and that, and that, and that is a Hebrew means of passing on. They attached them with those words, in the, and that's part of that rhythmic nature. I just said rhythmical. Often the lines are of similar length. It doesn't look like English poetry, but nonetheless, it is a cadence like that we, what we associate with, with poetry or something of that nature. And many of the words in these phrases, this is probably the least, this one's a little more subjective, I think, but a lot of the scholars take it pretty seriously. A lot of the words in the creedal passages, the scholar doing the writing never uses those words anywhere else. So these, some of these words are foreign to his vocabulary. So it looks like another indication it may be somebody else's material. Elementary theology. Do you know that 80 to 90% of the creedal passages in the New Testament, dozens of them, 80 to 90% is the gospel. The gospel, the gospel, deity, death, resurrection, deity, death, resurrection. And then this time it will be faith. Deity, death, resurrection, faith. Deity, death, resurrection, deity, death, resurrection. Over and over. Why did they do it so much? Because it was the yellow brick road. And a lot of people couldn't read or write. Had to repeat. You give it over and over. So as you're going to see at the end of this PowerPoint, scholars are agreed that this is as close as we will get to the earliest preaching of Peter, Paul, James, and John. It's very exciting material. All right, Pincus Lapide, the person up here, was a conservative I say was. I, I haven't checked. I don't know if he's alive or not anymore, but he wrote a book in the mid-'80s called The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. He remains Jewish. He's conservative Jewish, but he remains Jewish. And he says 
Jesus was raised from the dead. How about that? Jewish non-Christian, Jesus was raised from the dead. How do you know? The data are just that good. And this is his list from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following on how you know 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following can bear this weight that say that makes an unbeliever say he's raised. Here's some of the signs, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul told you it's not his. I gave you, I delivered unto you that which I also received, not mine. Non-Pauline vocabulary, diction, sentence structure. Parallelism, including the two stanzas that I just mentioned. The threefold kai hati and that. It's a Hebrew means of passing on tradition. By the way, you know what Josephus tells us? Pharisees taught by repetition and passing on tradition. Who was Paul? Philippians 3? A Pharisee. Bingo. He said, I gave you what I was given. I gave you what I was given. How did the Pharisees do it? They gave them, their students, what they were given. Paul was a Pharisee. Some of these tile, you know, puzzle pieces are starting to kind of fit together. A German scholar named Joachim Jeremias, it's Jeremiah with an, a on, uh, an S on the end, Jeremias argued that there was an Aramaic original for these terms. Yes, it's in Greek in 1 Corinthians 15, but it seems by some by a few words, this is not a unanimous conclusion, but there are a number of scholars who believe that there, this was originally circulated in Aramaic, which if you haven't heard, is most likely far and away the, the original language spoken by Jesus, a form of, uh, related to Hebrew. The double phrase, according to the scriptures. Early memorized cadence, died, buried, raised, appeared. You want to see something interesting? I had an evangelical friend of mine say to me one time, and then, you know, it was kind of cool when my friend saw it, and I thought, this is neat. Later, I read this in a critical New Testament scholar's book who didn't believe like evangelicals do, and he made the exact same point. I thought, wow, that's like confirmation from two sources. Here's what my friend said. Died, buried, raised, appeared. He said, that's neat. The definition of the gospel requires apologetics. How do you know? Died. What do we do with the dead? We bury him. Oh, you mean he really was dead? Yeah. Raised. Yeah, but raised is what happened in the tomb. Nobody was inside the tomb. How do you know he was raised? He appeared. Died, and we buried him. Raised, and we saw him. So right in the definition of the gospel, apologetics is built in. And this is happening right away? How early? Well, we'll get there. How early? 
There's the gospel content. Like I said, 80 to 90% of the creeds center in whole or in part on the gospel. There's the idea right there. The factual side. You've got the faith side. Are you, did you say yes to Jesus? Did you say I do? But this is the factual side. All right. Here's some conclusions from some of the biggest names in the field. Almost everybody up here is a huge name. And listen to what they say about the importance of this material. Oscar Coleman, who wrote the read who wrote the book. This may be apostolic. You say, what do you mean maybe? How do you know it wasn't? Well, other people were preaching besides the apostles. But maybe apostolic, but at least it comes from apostolic times. C.H. Dodd, Cambridge, based on what the original apostles had actually taught. Richard Baucom, still at Cambridge. The tradition was received from the Jerusalem apostles. Howard Clark Key. The only time I ever talked to Howard Clark Key, um, he was representing an agnostic point of view on the deity, deity death, resurrection of Jesus. Agnostic. And in a little later book from Cambridge University Press, What Can We Know About the Historical Jesus? Key says, these traditions are so heavy, so good, so checkable, that we could take them to a court of law and win the case. Folks, listen, you've got to read the critics before you realize the only people who talk like that are evangelicals. Critics don't say... You can take this to a court of law. I, I don't know another example. You don't say you can take this to a court of law and win a case. See, that just smacks of apologetics too much. And this may, you may think this is strange. We said earlier, the atheists call themselves brights, and they say we're stupid, and the reason we're stupid is they're into science and we're into faith. This, that, the new atheism, that's very pervasive, that comment. But who's the ones doing the research today? The evangelicals. Who are the ones winning the debates head to head? With neutral, not neutral, but I mean people who, judges who are not in either camp. Evangelicals. Dr. Copan earlier used a quote from a fellow who's very well known in our field, Dr. Quentin Smith, an atheist at Western Michigan University. And he said, because of Alvin Plantinga and philosophy, here's the best example of someone taking over their discipline for the Lord. He said, now we have one quarter to one third of practicing philosophers are Christians, mostly orthodox evangelicals, he says. And then he says this, we critics have fallen so far behind. He says, atheists, we've fallen so far behind that if you lock these evangelical plantingites, if you, if you lock this enlightened group of new philosophers, you lock them in debates one-on-one -on -one with top atheists around the world, 
this is a very well-known atheist, right? He says, let's make it even harder. Let's name atheist judges. He says, I have no doubt that the new breed of evangelical philosopher will win every debate. I'm not saying we have to go around and debate. I, I get... For somebody who hates debates, and I do, I sure end up doing a lot of them, but two in just a couple weeks ago. I just get tired of it. I, I don't think they solve the point. I, I'm just saying for somebody to be on the other side and say, why do we get whipped every time this happens? I go, well, if you want to get spiritual, you can say the Lord's on our side. If you want to do good research, you could say, we're just doing better research than you are right now. We've got the material, and what do we get for it? We're the brights. You're the dummies. Yeah, well, how come you stunk at that debate last week? No, I, I don't talk like that, but if some of you know me, I used to be the head ice hockey coach at Liberty University. And when people used to tease me and say, ice hockey? Baptist University? How do they go together? So I had to come up with something. So I said, well, it's easy. Hockey players, oh, wait a minute, you guys don't play too much hockey here. All right, I might have to help you with this one. But here's what I said. I said, we'll see who gets it first. I said, hockey players and Baptists solve their problems in roughly the same manner. How many of you got it? Nobody. All right, who plays hockey? What happens in hockey? Besides the game. Isn't somebody always fighting, seems like? That's how Baptists and hockey players... Saw, never mind. <laughs> I'm just saying there's a little bit of that in me because I coached, head coach for nine years. So there's a little bit of me that takes, takes some uh, umbrage, and I'm happy when evangelicals win these debates. And Dr. Copan's back there in the back. He's one of these... Seriously, he's one of these brilliant young guys that came out of the Planiga Revolution, and they're out there and doing these things. We're making a difference. I don't want to say it's because we're going all hockey on them. I'm teasing about that. But what I'm saying is, yes, we got the Lord on our side. We have to stay true to him. Number two, we've got the goods. We've got the best data. And even atheist Quentin Smith says, we can't stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with you guys on these things. He said every time. I mean, I can't imagine. I don't think it's true. But that's what he said. So back to key here. We can take it into a court of law and win the case. Critics don't talk like that. But it's this creedal argument that's closed the gap that gives us the evidence. You say, what gap? It was only 25 years. Well, you're right. That's good. But the next lecture will show you how good and how early this is. And if you've never heard this stuff before, it's just the most surprising conclusion there is. A few more. Larry Hurtado. He just retired from uh, Edinburgh. Formulated as early as days or months after the crucifixion. Days 
for months. Jimmy Dunn, Durham, formulated as early as months after the crucifixion. Most scholars, most scholars agree that the majority of creeds go right to the heart of the gospel teaching. If apologetics is one of your things, and I know your pastor said he wants to make it so here, and many of you from talking with you, you're interested in apologetics. In my estimation, this is the most exciting development that's come out of apologetics in the last few decades. We're not getting the word around very well. When you say this, most people say, what's that? But the fact that there's some criteria for telling what these things are, oh, there's one more thing I didn't tell you. The vast majority of critical, not evangelical scholars, the vast majority of scholars agree on where the creeds are. How could I have given a list of 40, and I told you I'd probably add 20 more to it, but I have a, in print, I have a list of 40 of them. I also have a list of what scholars agree that those are creeds, and there's multiple backup for every one of them. Critics, you have to be very good in the Greek, but the critics know where the where these creedal passages are. And the fact that it's gospel, it's just amazing. Let me, um, well, I'll tell you what. Let me uh, let this just, well, I did this last time. I'll just let it sit there. Um, let me make one more comment, and then I'll ask if you have any questions. This material is early. It's not the material that the person wrote, the person even says, it's not my material, goes back to apostolic times. We get a window into what the apostles teach. Now, you could say, well, I already believed all that. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm glad there's extra information, but I already believe that. What does this give me? I'll tell you what it gives you. It gives you maybe the best arrow in our quiver for doing apologetics, you may have believed it, but just look around. This is a Christian church. We share these things. We believe these things. They're second nature words to us. But the critical community doesn't know, doesn't trust, doesn't know the force behind these. And it gives us an incredible argument that says, you know, this goes back here. It goes back at a two to three year period. And it comes from the right people. What you have is right time, right place, right people doing the right message. And that leads right into the next lecture. So I will save the rest of this for that. I will just add that 1 Corinthians 15 is the best known of these creeds. And the consensus view today, the consensus critical view today, almost nobody will argue with you, is that it goes right back to the cross. Right back to the cross. <laughs>